Hey everybody, this is Alex and welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast. It's fascinating how the Republican base is in that we've kind of forgotten Ronald Reagan. And so as a party, we can either choose to be relevant and take the majorities back or we can choose 100% party purity. The truth is, is we can work together and you know go fight progressive liberals in Portland or we can turn on each other and eat our own. And politics for me is simple math and I prefer addition. Politics is about connection. So if you can't connect with people, you're not gonna be successful. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in for another episode. We have a real special treat for you today. We have Republican minority leader in the Senate, Tim Canope. We're really excited to have Senator Canope on for a number of reasons. One, because as most of you know at this point, his son, Reagan Canope, is a great friend of the pod. And two, he dives into a lot of really interesting policy, political, and personal topics while on the podcast. And my personal greatest takeaway from this is that Unfortunately, I am either zero for two or zero for three at this point with jokes with guests, because my first question, I ask him in a joking manner, why his son is a rhino, which of course, for those of you who know, rhino stands for Republican in name only. It's kind of an insult that folks on the GOP side trade with each other. And I actually think he thought when he first heard the question, I was seriously asking him. So he probably thought to his staff, why the heck did you put me on this podcast with this guy? So all joking aside, though, he did know that it was a joke, uh, at least at the end of the episode. So we're glad that we were able to get him on and hope that it makes for, you know, a bunch of interesting tidbits for y'all. So thanks again for tuning into another episode. Please make sure to give us five stars. If you haven't already, definitely check us out on YouTube. We're posting more video content on there and Buddy's doing a great job with that. And yeah, leave a comment. We love to respond to those and we love to take your questions and maybe answer some of those in one of the introductions. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you in the episode. Well, perfect. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, we have the new, I guess, semi-new Republican minority <laughs> leader in the Senate. So, Leader, how are you doing today? Doing well, gentlemen. It's good to be with you. I would say this is a little bit more of, of a personal podcast because, of <laughs> course, we're, uh, I am a very close friend of your son, Reagan, and Ben is also, uh, him and Reagan chat about politics all the time, which is a very exciting thing to see. But we have to settle a couple of matters first. So, for the audience, is it Canope or is it not? Canope. Okay. You heard it here first, people. So now, now, now you actually know how to pronounce it. Uh, my mother always pronounces it wrong, and I always have to correct her, which I think is also very funny. I do I do notice that you don't often correct people when they say it wrong. You kind of just roll with it. It seems to be the way it works. Well, I so what I tell people is I don't care how you pronounce it as long as you vote for it on the ballot because it looks the same. <laughs> so, you know, and, and Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec has really ruined our name because now everybody's super confused about how to pronounce it, you know. So Leslie, unfortunately, is way more popular than I am. So there you have it. Maybe not in Central Oregon, but good, fair, fair uh, enough. I don't know about that. We'll see. <laughs> Very good. And then again, Senator, you know, we're asking you the really hard questions first and the really personal ones. And millions of people, the conservatives across the state, have just been begging me to ask this question. Okay, so they, they want to know. How a firm, long-standing conservative like you could have a son, Reagan Canope, who has turned out to be such a rhino liberal. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I, so, I was going to get so much flack if I didn't ask that question. So, you know, we, we have to have the hard ones first. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, it's fascinating how the Republican base is 
in that we've kind of forgotten uh, Ronald Reagan and, you know, his temperament and how he dealt with things. And his thing was, you know, if you're with me 80% of the time, you're 80% friend, you're not a 20% enemy. And I think we need to look at it that way. And I think probably that's the way Reagan views it and is not rigid. And so as a party, I mean, you guys have brought up a great point. So as a party, we can choose one of two things. We can either choose to be relevant and take the majorities back, or we can choose 100% party purity. If you choose 100% party purity, you're going to become irrelevant. And if that's what you're looking to do, then you should stay on 100% party purity track. However, you know, a lot of us have differing views, represent differing districts. And if we're going to get majorities back, we're going to get those through winning swing seats. And you're going to have to give candidates and public officials the latitude to sometimes disagree with you. Obviously, we don't like disagreement on issues that are obviously kind of the top five that are so important to the base, which generally speaking are taxes, right to life, immigration, guns, and you know the economy and keeping the economy as free as possible, sort of individual rights and individual responsibility. You know, I think those are the values. And so when people are with us most of the time, you know, they're a friend of mine. And when I was the majority leader in the House, we had 35 Republicans out of 60. It was the high point for the last several decades for Republicans. And we had probably what was considered and what some people considered 10 moderates, sometimes called rhinos. And that's the reason we held the majority. And so, you know, for my colleagues, when they complained about their colleagues not voting with us, I always said, you can have them in the caucus or you can give the gavels to the Democrats and let them run it. And, you know, ultimately the Democrats took over. So I know that's a long answer to a A bad joke, a facetious question. question. (laughs) But I think, I mean, I do think it is an important one, but Reagan and I many times differ on, you know, how we approach things, but he is amazingly well-informed and sometimes I have to get my information from him because I'm sort of the last to know. So um, <laughs> he does a lot of breaking news. Uh, so that's good. He does. He's a great pod insider. He's very helpful to us, too. Yeah. So, Senator, you, you actually touched on a couple of things that I find really interesting about your personal path in politics. So the sort of overarching theme that I want to explore a little bit is OPV when you were elected leader they framed you in an interesting way that caught me off guard a little bit. They basically said, you know, used to be a strongline conservative when he joined the House and has evolved to become one of the Senate's moderates, which was an interesting framing because usually in a caucus leadership election, a caucus isn't going to elect a moderate member like that isn't reflective of their caucus. So that's like the starting point. I guess I'm curious, what was your reaction when you saw that framing? Did it resonate with you or did you sort of laugh about how they were thinking about it? You know, I I really do find it interesting how people describe me or try to label me. In my house service, I coined the phrase mainstream conservative. Okay. And the reporter I was talking to said, what's that? We know conservative. We know right wing. We know moderate. We know rhino. What's mainstream conservative? I said, mainstream conservative is somebody who works on the issues that their constituents care about. And our, you know, pocketbook issues, you know, taxation, regulation, education, affordable health care, things like that. And most of my colleagues come from dark red districts. And so they stand for election and they, you know, their elections are relatively easy once they've made it past the primary. 
And as I said before, if we're going to be relevant, regain control, we're going to do that through the swing districts, which are all Democrat majority registration. Some of them are light blue, some of them are a little more moderate blue, you know, just like the Democrats have no chance to win our dark red districts, we have no chance to win their plus 52D districts in Portland. So it's really about what happens in the Portland suburbs and basically what I call the I-5 corridor. I mean, that's where the majority exists for one party or the other, which we used to have that majority. And so, you know, when people label me, you know, I just, I'm interested, you know, I think the reason people call me a moderate is because I work in a bipartisan way and I work on issues that traditionally maybe aren't seen as Republican issues or aren't core base issues, but are also important to my constituents and, you know, generally at large. And my district essentially performs like a statewide ballot. For instance, Trump lost my district by about 16 points and he lost Oregon by about 16 points. And so Trump lost your Senate district by 16 points. Yeah, it was like 15.6, something like that. And was you that in won- 2020 or 2016? Or yeah, obviously in 2020. 2020 yeah, 2020. And, and you won your district by how many points? Uh, 1.63, I believe. 1.63, um, okay. So 17 is, point overperformance. Well, exactly. And I, I mean, my seat is always up during the presidential election year. So top of the ticket stuff does matter. And, you know, we obviously pay attention to that. So I don't argue with people about, whatever their perception is. I would argue some of our supporters are too quick to label people rhinos because if you don't agree with them on one thing or you don't do you know, what they want in one situation, there are people who jump out there and, oh, we need to recall that person. They're a rhino. They're not pure enough, whatever. And you know, the truth is, is we can work together and you know, go fight the progressive liberals in Portland, or we can you know, basically turn on each other and eat our own. And Politics for me is simple math, and I prefer addition to subtraction. So I want to add numbers to our caucuses, not subtract them. So I just think that's better. So, and I'm better at addition than I am subtraction. Well, as the Democrat on the podcast, I'm comfortable with subtraction on the Republican side, but I understand where you're coming from as well. So (laughs) my quick follow-up before I give it back to Alex is two interesting points in your career. My understanding is you ran for the state house by challenging an incumbent. And you didn't win that first time. Then you to run for the state Senate, you also challenged an incumbent. And that time you did win. So I guess I'm curious, what was it that drew you? Usually when people want to join the legislature, it's a lot easier to run for an open seat or when someone's retiring. Um, It's a lot harder and can also anger some people, particularly when you primary a member of your own party. So what was it that for you was the the point where you said, I have to step up, I have to run for these seats back when you first got started in both chambers? You know, when I ran in 94 for the first time, I was in my late 20s and just believed that there was a vote on the sales tax and uh, my sitting Republican House member voted to refer that to the people of Oregon. I thought it was a bad idea. I was part of the campaign to defeat the sales tax. And so I ended up deciding to run over that issue. You know, you notice financial issue, right? Pocketbook issue, taxation, big issue. And that's my first campaign. I walked just under half the district and surprisingly, I got just under half the vote. Uh, (laughs) So if nothing, I can be educated. And so I realized that next time I ran, I should walk more than 50% of the district. And I ran again in 98, four years later. 
every Republican politician of substance came out against me and endorsed my opponent. My opponent outspent me two to one. I walked about, I think about 75, 80% of the district that time. And I won by about 10 points in the primary and went on to win by about 10 points in the general as well. Were the Republicans who endorsed against you mad that you had primaried one of their colleagues? Is that basically it? Or was there other politics at play? No, I mean, I just, they had, I know it's interesting because how things change, but they had essentially chosen the replacement for this person, you know, as a moderate, you know, establishment candidate. I'm a young guy trying to crash their party. You know, <laughs> I, I needed to wait my turn. I mean, all startup candidates have heard this, younger candidates have heard this over and over again. And that's why I never tell people, you know, don't run. Hey, if you have the passion, the desire, and you believe, you know, you want to serve and you have a path to win, you know, I'm not going to tell you don't run because I've been there. But at the same time, you know, you got to do your calculus and have a good strategy if you want to be successful in elective politics, because uh, it has become uh, more bruising and bitter every cycle. So it is not what it used to be. I can tell you that. And then real quick on the Senate, when you ran, I think it was Senator Chris Telfer at the time who you primaried. Was that a similar pocketbook taxation difference of opinion? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of the lobby asked me to run. And I said no for about six months. And, you know, I kind of came up with a few things that would have to happen in order for me to, to run. And about the time those were accomplished, the filing deadline was approaching and I was leaving for a trip, long planned trip to Israel. Mm. And I was going to be in Israel on filing day. And we knew that in order to beat an incumbent, we had to have a head to head race. And so we had to file late. So I believe I have the distinction as the only candidate who has uh, filed for a legislative seat from Israel. <laughs> so so that, that is what happened. I came back a day later and, you know, never looked back. We won the primary uh, 68% and uh, we won uh, the general election as well. And obviously I've been elected two more times, so. Very cool. Thanks for explaining that for us. Titus? Yeah, you bet. Great. Yeah. And I, I do want to circle back to that at one point, but let's go ahead and we'll ask some questions about the Senate. So obviously you you recently became leader. When was that now? Was that about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. I can at least do a little bit of math, which is good. Uh, <laughs> I, think we've had, I think we've had four leaders in five years. And so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> six weeks is exceptional performance. I'm going to sign up for another six and see if I can stretch it out. <laughs> you'll, you'll be the senior leader soon. It'll be great. <laughs> but so talk us a little bit about kind of give us the insider scoop. What happened? What sort of prompted you to become leader? What did the process look like? Was there other people who were also vying for the position? Give us a little bit of the context of how it happened. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you as much as I can. You know, there's some personal stuff there, but Senator Gerard was our leader at the time, and he was doing a great job. He got us through a pretty tough election cycle for Republicans in Oregon. In 20, you know, we had won two key Senate races. We had won Dick Anderson. We had won mine. We almost won the reelection for Senator Bowles, who was replacing Jackie Winters and you know running to finish out her term. And so that seat is up again in uh, 2022. But Senator Gerard just done such a great job. But he has some health issues that the stress of being the leader and the constant, you know, running, and basically, it's a 24 seven type of job. 
And, you know, I think his doctors and family just said, hey, this is going to affect your health pretty dramatically if you continue to do this. And we don't want you to do this anymore. So he approached me and said, you know, here's the situation. And I said, is there anybody else? <laughs> uh, you know, because, I mean, here's the thing is I have carved out a pretty good niche and being the maverick of the Senate Republican caucus. And I obviously still vote with the caucus on all the important issues because we agree, you know, and we do come together on that stuff. But, you know, strategically and those types of things, I didn't necessarily agree with the caucus on everything. And so, you know, I wasn't 100% sure it was truthfully the best fit. But, you know, as Fred talked about it, I said, okay, I'll consider it. But, you know, we've got some things in front of us that we got to accomplish. And so you got to give me some time to accomplish that, which is basically redistricting. And because I just, I didn't want to introduce leadership stuff in the middle of that. And so, you know, I was kind of hoping, quite frankly, that Fred would forget. Uh, and um, Unfortunately, he remembered, huh? But uh, right after the redistricting happened, I, got, I think I got a call the next day and like, <sighs> so anyway, no, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of the way it came down. And I obviously have done this uh, job before in the house and thoroughly enjoy the campaign cycle, raising money, the strategic part of it. And, uh, you know, I, I make people nervous and I think that's part of the reason the caucus was willing to do it is they know my campaign background. I know how to win swing seats. I know how to get and keep us in the majority. And so we have a great opportunity in 2022. Sorry, Ben, I don't, you know, don't want to <laughs> dash your dreams of uh, super majorities on the left, but we, uh, let's just say we intend to, uh, Senator Knope intends once again to crash your party. So just um, stay out of Tigard is all I'm saying, Senator. <laughs> just keep out of Tigard. <laughs> so one question I have on that, and I've been thinking about this on both the left and the right, because in both the Senate and the House, you have caucus leaders, whether they're minority or majority leader. And so you have been, I think one of the things I most admire about your career is how you handled the sexual harassment issue in the legislature. And I think that might be one of the, the maverick issues where you basically came out against a colleague and said, this isn't about politics. This is about workplace issues. And you built some relationships, meaningful relationships with folks like Senator Gelser and others. And so there's that on one side, which I think we all would agree is like a key ingredient to good government is, you know, folks who can work together, who can put partisanship aside, occasionally call out members of their own party when necessary, et cetera. But then the incentives for the caucus leader position on both sides of the aisle is basically to flame the other side as much as possible and defend. And I think this is a um, I think it's always been that way. But if you look at the press releases over the last like four years versus, you know, in the 90s or 2000s, it does feel like it's getting more aggressive, more frequently. And so I wonder, did you like what is your thinking on the role of a caucus leader like you know, you might want to put out a press release saying Deb Patterson is an awful liberal, but then you also might want to work with Deb Patterson on a piece of legislation. So how do you, how have you thought about your specific role, given, as you said, you're kind of like this unique position in the caucus? It's almost like if Kurt Schrader got elected, you know, majority leader of the Democrats, like he's a maverick on the caucus, but like that would never happen. So you're just in this weird space. And I wonder how you think about navigating those pieces. Uh, well, just like Kurt Schrader, I wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. So. <laughs> some similarities then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we do share some. You know, what I try to do is not make it personal. I think we can disagree without being disagreeable. I can get along with anybody who wants to get along with me. You know, there's a lot of canoe haters out there. I get it. It doesn't bother me. So, you know, we're going to message what we think is important to Oregonians. And we are pushing back 
on a lot of the, the left agenda. And we're going to be very strategic about how we do it in the 22 election cycle and in the 22 session. And so I don't send out press releases to inflame. I send out press releases to inform uh, because I think the people of Oregon want to know what's really going on. And for those who don't get to listen to your podcast, which seems very popular because I just heard recently from someone from my district who is on the left, who listens to your podcast and heard the podcast with Reagan and, and, and apparently is a regular viewer slash listener. So you guys have some significant reach. So good for you guys. But, you know, I try to do the same thing. I try to increase our reach into the hearts and minds of Oregonians about what the issues are that they care about. And politics is about connection. So if you can't connect with people, you're not going to be successful. And so I think many times on the Republican side, we're too statistic and fact-based. And we just assume that, you know, if we just give them the facts, ma'am, that they'll understand and agree with us. But you have to connect with people on an emotional level as well. And I think that's something that Republicans don't do very well. And so, you know, the great politicians, as I say, are storytellers. And so I'll give you two examples, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Mm. highly successful politicians, both of them, great storytellers. Now they engage the audience, they let people get to know them. And, you know, people, well, Willamette Week opined just recently about Governor Brown and how unpopular she is and why this occurs. And I think in large part, it's because the governor hasn't let people in to understand who she is and connect with people. And, you know, she's just, you know, she's on the progressive agenda train and she's driving that ish, you know, that agenda. And you still got to connect with people, you know, like Ted Kulangowski, what did he do to connect with people? He went to every funeral of a fallen soldier during his term. And there were plenty, you know, because this was in the height of Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. Yeah. And you know, all the deaths from IEDs and all that. And so there were a lot. And so he connected on an emotional level with Oregonians on that and other things too. And so we're going to try to obviously create those connections with the electorate, try to be as open and transparent as we can, you know, talk about who we are and why we believe what we believe. And we don't think people should get their, you know, their view of us from Don Lemon and CNN and MSNBC and all that, you know, with Rachel Maddow. Because or Fox News. That talking. Yeah. I mean, I don't even <laughs> listen to that stuff on either side anymore because, you know, it's just talking heads trying to, you know, bite the other person's head off on a nightly basis. And I, I just don't need that kind of negativity in my life, truthfully. That's actually almost exactly the conversation I had with my dad, where I was basically, because he, he was very worked up during Trump, right after Trump from the left. And I was like, stop watching MSNBC. Like, it's not helpful. It's sensationalistic. I think it's worse on the right in some cases, but I think the left does it too. It's this, the incentives of media is sometimes not aligned with the incentives of, you know, good mental health or democracy, (laughs) for example. So I think, I think that's interesting. And it does actually seem like viewership post-Trump is super low. Oh, it's fallen off a cliff for every major cable outlet. Yeah. So I think like there was almost like, I don't want to call it an addiction, but there was this draw to know every little thing that was happening throughout the Trump presidency. And I hope that there's this realization now that the level of, it just wasn't, it wasn't healthy for any individual, let alone for the country. So I hope that there's a rise of podcasts like the Oregon Bridge and a decline of cable news. But Alex, sorry, I know you have a question. Only we could bring that advertising revenue to this podcast. We could make a <laughs> podcast episode every day. <laughs> but Leader Kudop, getting back to one more question about the Senate. Actually, I have two more questions about the Senate before we transition. Before you were talking a little bit more about, you know, we really need to let Oregonians 
understand what our policy agenda is and what we stand for. Because as you were saying, you're hoping for great results heading into 2022. Obviously, you are recently moved into this new position, but what do you think are maybe, and you don't have to, I mean, I'm not going to ask you for a laundry list. Well, it was one we don't have time for you to go over it anyway, but what would you say are like the two or maybe even the most pressing issue of as the leader of the Oregon Republicans in the Senate, I want every Oregonian voter to know that we stand for this. Like, what do you kind of think that that agenda looks like? Well, here's what I can tell you. And the governor recently called a special session and people want to know my response to that. I was like, we don't work for the government. We work for the people of Oregon. Our constitutional oath is to protect the constitutional rights under the state and federal constitutions of our constituents. And so while the governor may call a special session, if she wants one, they're going to have to negotiate a bipartisan deal. And I would say we're getting very close and there'll probably be an announcement today. But, you know, what we stand for is defending the individual rights of citizens against government overreach. And there's been so much government overreach during COVID, both at the federal and state level, that people are starting to rebel against that. And, you know, we famously, once again, saw the governor without her mask in Washington, D.C. And my quip was, apparently only COVID exists in offices and schools in Oregon and not in ballrooms at swanky fundraisers in Washington, D.C. And people are just tired of politicians that say one thing and do another and, you know, don't even follow the own, you know, the rules and the laws that they institute and pass. And especially when it involves, you know, risk to their family, their, their livelihoods and so on. And so obviously we also, as Republicans, support our law enforcement and public safety. And, you know, we support our police officers who do the job right, risk their lives every day that they go out there now. And, you know, the left wants to defund them and they attack them at every level and try to hamstring them from doing their job. And, you know, surprise, surprise, we have an outbreak of crime, shootings, murder, and people are tired of it. And so we're going to be talking about that issue as well. And then you can't go into any significant city in Oregon without running into the homelessness issue and recognize what a crisis that is. And it isn't that way in every state. You know, I've been to a lot of states and big cities have always had some homeless issue, but ours is more acute than most. And people are afraid to go into downtown Portland anymore. Uh, they don't want that to spread to you know their cities. And so, you know, part of my campaign last cycle was to run against Portland and, uh, you know, the progressives who almost every progress, almost every Democrat who gets elected in a primary now is part of the progressive wing because they basically control those primaries now. And so they're just getting candidates that are further and further left. And so, you know, we're going to point out the differences on issues between us and them. And those are, you know, those are three issues. There's more, but I think those are probably you know, the main thing we're going to focus on besides, you know, Biden inflation and ineptness of the Democrats at both the federal and state level. And there are many examples to point to uh, that are true and legitimate. You mean you're not going to talk about the Democrats saving the United States economy? What is going on out there? Ah, <laughs> uh, here we go. Here we go. Ben's getting his campaign slogan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm like, okay, so how do I respond to this? No, uh, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think it's interesting. Some issues both sides will talk about, 
I think, especially in the metro area, folks are going to have to talk about homelessness on both the right and the left. Some issues I think will be focused on just by one particular side. But, you know, we could have the political debate all day. One of the questions we have to ask you on the show, we've talked about it a lot, is redistricting. But I think it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, no offense by this, but your role in redistricting was kind of funny because the Republicans on the House side got elevated because of this deal. So they had equal power for at least a time with the Democrats. And then obviously you had Democratic majority. So you're sort of the like the kid at the adults table who you, you didn't quite have equal power on the Senate, but your Republican colleagues did on the House. So what was your experience in redistricting given your unique sort of dynamic as a Senate Republican where there was no deal for equal power? Well, and part of it is, is the reason we didn't move for equal representation in the Senate is because Senate rules are different. Okay. And so even if we were tied 3-3, Senate president can come in and vote at any That's time. Right. That's right. On the House side, that isn't true. And so I would just say that there was the illusion that there was a parity on the House side. But when that deal happened, you know, I, like many others, were like, hmm. So we removed the impediment for the Democrats to finish their agenda on the House side because they were, you know, the deal was, is you guys can't, you know, you guys can't hold us up. You can't stall. You can't basically you have to stop reading bills and, you know, literally if we would have kept doing that on both sides, we would have owned the agenda for the last three weeks of the session, which meant a lot of stuff that the Democrats wanted to do would have died and otherwise passed. So the speaker got what she wanted up front and provided what looked like parity. And I, like a lot of people, had heard constantly, you can't trust a speaker and make a deal with her and expect her to keep it. And I was like, mm, then why would she keep this one? And, you know, sure enough, when, you know, they decided it was in their best interest to change the deal. They did. And I saw that coming from a long way away. So I knew that it was best to engage, negotiate, work with my colleagues. I spent a lot of time and effort. I literally spent, I think, 50 plus days in the Valley between the end of session and the start of the process in, you know, in Salem on redistricting. And we were able to get uh, the Lane County seat, we had complained for years that, you know, they Democrats just split Eugene into four different districts and make them all Democrat. And, uh, you know, while I can't admit that publicly, they finally threw in the towel and said, we're tired of you guys complaining about this, <laughs> you know, and I, it really was indefensible, especially if you guys listen to the testimony, you saw that the people from Lane County, even on the liberal side from the university is like, no, you got to put the university all in one district. Well, they had it in like three districts, you know. This is like, there's only one reason to do that. When you can fit it in one, but you put it in three, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's going on there. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. It got put in one district that meant basically that most of the city of Eugene was not in one of the Senate districts anymore. Uh, so that, you know, that turned Republican. And then, you know, Johnson's seat, we knew if she left that uh, will be open and that we intend to win that seat in the 2022 election. And so really what I was looking for was a status quo map with opportunity. And I think there's a ton of opportunity in 2022, more than probably we even anticipated. And so when you have a, um, a truck driver in New Jersey that spends $153 and beats the sitting Senate president of the New Jersey legislature, New Jersey Senate, and his $153 
50 was spent on donuts, 50 for, <laughs> $50 was spent on flyers and $50 was spent on business cards. I don't know what the other three was for. <laughs> I assume that was a miscellaneous category. But when you spend $153 and knock off the sitting Senate president in any state, I think that should be a canary in the coal mine as to what the electorate is thinking out there. So we feel good about where we're at in the Senate and we believe we're going to contend for control. Fascinating difference of, I mean, there was definitely brinksmanship on the House side where we didn't know if the map was going to happen. Like we didn't know people were going to show up for committee, but the perception, at least from the outside was like Canope and Taylor are whittling away and negotiating. And it seems like some of the, the major items that you were hoping to get understanding the political predicament you're in, in terms of being in the minority, like you were actually able to get through. But I, I, yeah, it was just an interesting observation of how, I think that's like sort of like a microcosm of the legislature. Like there's two approaches to being minority. You can be brinksmanship all the time, or you can be deal-making. And I guess there's plenty of gray area in between, but yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, here's the issue, you know, if we were in control and I, you know, what I always try to do is put the shoe on the other foot. So if we were in control and we had super majorities, and at one point we almost did, would we go, oh, gee, you know, the Democrats are at a disadvantage here. Let's even things out. Um, no, 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 we wouldn't do that. In fact, we didn't do that. In 2001, when redistricting came around, we passed our plan. And, you know, I think it was probably fair. Democrats obviously disagreed. We tried to do it in a different way after it was vetoed by Kitzhopper <laughs> right. and thus the walkout by Democrats to stop us from doing that. They said, oh, what you're doing is unconstitutional. And we said, okay, then just stay here and we'll see you in court. And they're like, yeah, no, thanks. We're just going to let Bill Bradbury do it, you know? And so they walked out for seven days and, you know, thus the beginning of the, you know, the partisan walkout. Uh, Democrats taught us how to do it. So thank you, Democrats. Um, Jim Knope's taking notes as Democrats are walking out saying this might yeah, come I in mean, handy someday. Little did I know. Uh, I mean, and, and here's the thing about what's going on right now is like, the Democrats want to get rid of that quorum requirement, right? Right. And so they just want to make it a simple majority. And I, and I think to myself, wouldn't it be ironic if somehow the Republicans were able to take control of the Senate and the Democrats just eliminated their ability to <laughs> stop what we want to do through a quorum? I don't know. You got to be careful what you wish for. So, you know, we'll see how it goes, but uh, we are very serious uh, and we're going to be organized and ready. Great. And on on the topic of elections, I want to ask you a little bit more about your district because I just pulled up Ballotpedia right now. And I know that you won your district in 2020 by a little more than a point. And that it says in 2016, you won by a little over 20 points. I'm assuming part of that is probably the changing demographics in Oregon with people moving in from Seattle, people moving in from California and things like that. And I don't think it's just your district that's changed dramatically. I mean, Oregon's added a substantial number of people to the state since 2000. If you look at the change in population from up to 2020, I'm just sort of curious of like, how do you think the growth of the state is going to change both the politics on the GOP side of things as it's dramatically changed the makeup of your district, but then also on the Democratic side of things? Yeah, Alex, there's two things at play there. One is, is that in my two previous general elections in 2012 and 2016. So in about 2012, the Democrats invested roughly 150, 200,000 in the race. In 2016, they invested nothing. I think my opponent raised about 10,000. And how, how much did you spend on both of those races? Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. um, let's just call it half a million. Uh, okay. So let's just say the, disp the disparity was pretty significant. Now, I would say that in the 2020 election, uh, this disparity was still pretty significant, although 
the Democrats spent about 775,000 and I spent uh, 1.3 plus million dollars. So I wow. almost doubled them. But I think the important point is, is that they, the demographics in the district had shifted enough to where they decided they wanted to, you know, make a run at it. They had had a candidate that had run for the house before, had some name ID and so on. So they made a run at it. And, and so, could- so I'm curious of like, I think that, uh, and so, sorry to cut you off, but I think that yeah, no sort of maybe what you did could be a good lesson for other Republicans, right? I mean, you said Joe Biden won that district by 17 points. I mean, that's got to be probably not the largest swing in the country, but probably in the top 10 or top 20 of parties that voted for one party and then voted for the other. Uh, and obviously you do, you know, you said that you did very well on the fundraising front. You're obviously an incumbent, but like, what are you think the specific issues that maybe you highlighted that other Republicans should be focusing on too when they're competing in these competitive swing districts? Or I wouldn't even maybe call your district a swing district now. Uh, it will probably go to, well, obviously it doesn't exist anymore, but definitely it would probably go to the left in the next election cycle if you weren't running. What are some of those policy lessons or like what were the issues you're talking about that you think resonated well? Well, uh, it's twofold. The issues that I was talking about contrasted with issues that the Democrats were talking about. Hmm. And so kind of the interesting thing, you know, besides the percentages, is just raw numbers. So 8,000 people voted for Joe Biden and Tim Cano. 8,000. And you just look at that and go, really? And so that was a lot of people in the middle. You know, I was able to consistently get about 10%, maybe 11 or 12% of Democrats. And, you know, so those are still the pro-Second Amendment, pro-life Democrats that just don't want to switch parties, but don't feel like they have a home and don't vote for Democrat candidates, where my opponent was probably getting one or 2% of Republicans. So the issues we focused on were pocketbook issues, public safety issues, the riots in Portland, and how all the Democrats all of a sudden got laryngitis and couldn't speak about it and were silent uh, for months on end while, you know, there's these riots going on and they're tearing the city apart. And, you know, it's only Republicans saying, you know, should, you know, shouldn't we stop them from trying to burn down the justice building with employees and prisoners inside, you know, and, you know, the Democrats are just, well, shrugging their shoulders, like, well, whatever, you know, and you guys know that that was just all designed to, you know, those riots to, um, you know, just highlight um, the, uh, the chaos and stuff that was happening under the previous administration. It was really designed to, you know, push him out. And so, uh, you know, obviously coordinated issues because it's amazing how all of a sudden it just goes away after the election. You know, uh, somehow it's not an issue anymore. And apparently race wasn't an issue when Obama was president, but somehow it became one, you know, when you know Trump got elected. So, I mean, we, we just stayed focused on local issues and things that uh, were we thought were important to people. Democrats spent hundreds of thousands of dollars talking about uh, abortion and gay marriage and vaccines. and at the same time, they're pursuing an early vote strategy. And so all the people that are going to be swayed by that had already voted by the time they started their commercials. And we were just, I mean, we were kind of laughing because it was like, well, uh, you know, were they right in what they were saying about those issues? Not 100 percent. You know, I mean, there's there's some definitely some inaccuracies there, but we didn't we decided we weren't going to engage on it because we knew they were talking to their base and the people that were already voting for my opponent. And so they could get to a certain level in terms of their support and polling and they could never get beyond it. 
because they weren't talking about issues and connecting with what they needed to do. So, hmm. you know, I felt like we connected better and, um, you know, I think we ran a, a better campaign than they did, even with the, you know, the issues that, you know, we had at the federal level and, and, um, you know, obviously that Oregon isn't exactly a state where Republicans invest a lot of money nationally. So you're kind of on your own as it relates to that. And so we need to raise more money to be competitive. Fascinating. So we are right at time, but I have to fit in one last question. I have to, I have to call you out because you are responsible for the nonsensical kicker law in Oregon, where when we overcollect in taxes as a government, we have to give it back. We can't save it for a rainy day. We can't use it in other things. This drives liberals nuts. But my understanding is you are actually quite proud of this piece of legislation. So to close us out, can you defend the kicker and tell listeners why you think it is smart public policy in Oregon? Yes, Ben, I can, and I am proud of it. So in uh, 1999, SDR 17 was my uh, priority bill as a freshman legislator. I got that passed. I got it on the ballot. Uh, Kitz Hopper said the regret of his uh, public service was that he did not Didn't engage and, and try to uh, go against the kicker law, which passed, I think it was in the mid-60s. It passed by, uh, I don't know, 66% or 62%, something like that. But I think has led to the return of about $6 billion to taxpayers. And so Ben, I just want you to know, I trust you with your money <laughs> more than I trust the government. And that is the key is government will always find something to spend your money on. And we can talk about the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that have been wasted over time. And so we have plenty of reserves in the state. We do not need the kicker. We should return it to the people. We should trust them with their money. And the people that pay taxes should get that money back if we didn't anticipate it. And so while it may be technically clunky and you don't like it, <laughs> the people of Oregon still do like it, even though it was turned into a credit and you're not getting a check in November and December like the Republicans used to do for you. But you <laughs> will get a credit when you file your taxes next year. And it's going to be big. And uh, Ben, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I won't thank you for the policy, but I will thank you for the explanation uh, and the the uh, exquisite defense of the kicker. Uh, I'll so be expecting uh, Ben's kicker to show up on my taxes. Uh, so <laughs> That's right. Maybe That's we right. can rewrite you, it a little bit. You know, the people you don't do not like want it. your kicker check. That's Alex Titus at PO Box. No, I. We, <laughs> <laughs> Well, very good. Well, uh, Leader Kenobi, you've been very generous with your time. And thanks again for joining us and putting up with our bad jokes. Before we let you go, uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow your work? This is the time to call out all your social media, mailing channels, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook. I mean, I'm Tim Kenobi. You can find me on Twitter, although I'm, I'm uh, not on the Twitter all that much. I think we're going to have to up our game there. You know, I think Betty White has beat me on that. I feel bad. But uh, we are, we're on I think all the social media platforms, as well as my website, timkenope.com. And um, you can always you know, email us. And our email is on the uh, Oregon Legislative Information System on the uh, state website. And we look forward to engaging with the public here over the next few months, uh, running into the uh, 2022 short session. Okay. All right, Senator, thanks so much for coming on. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. You bet. We'll see you guys. Thanks. Thanks.